Part 1 of Exeter by Sidney Heath. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reader's Note This book was published by Blackie and Son Limited in the Beautiful England series in 1912. The printed volume includes 12 illustrations by E. W. Hazelhurst. The City Just as the five cities of Colchester, Lincoln, York, Gloucester and St. Albans stand on the sites and in some fragmentary measure bear the names of five Roman municipalities, so Isca Dum Non Iorum, now Exeter, appears to have been a cantonal capital developed out of one of the great market centres of the Celtic tribes, and as such it was the most westerly of the larger Romano-British towns. The legendary history of the place, both temporal and ecclesiastical, goes far back to the days when, for a late posterity, it is difficult to separate fact from fable. It is, however, quite established that here was the capital of the Dumnonii, the British tribe whose dominions included both Devonshire and Cornwall, and who named their capital Caerwisk, the city of the waters. With the coming of the Saxons, the river, the Roman Isca, became the Exa, and the city was called Exencaster, modified in due course to Exeter. In point of position, on a mound rising from the river, it was a splendid site for a fortress in the days of hand-to-hand warfare, and the military value of the site lends support to the statement of some writers that the Romans utilised the British fortifications and built a castle. In few places of its size can one see so clearly the extent of the old walled town, while the disposition and formation of its outer ring of houses on the lower slopes of the mound show very clearly the limits of the mural circumvallation before the city burst asunder its tight-fitting belt of stone within which, for the safety of its populace, it had been imprisoned for centuries. Climb the higher parts for a bird's-eye view of the city, and the scene is entrancing. We look down upon the calm flowing X, threading its way through the valley, till it debouches at Exmouth. On the riverside beneath us is the quay, with coasting schooners and barges moored alongside, and sundry bales of merchandise heaped upon the wharf, as though the people were playing at commerce to remind the world at large that Exeter was once an important port, although some ten miles from the river's mouth. But the X, in a quiet way, has much to boast of in the nature of beauty and romance, particularly where it flows past the wooded grounds of Powderham Castle, the Devonshire seat of the great Courtney family. Truly there is much to redeem modern Exeter and make it interesting over and above its historical atmosphere. Yet with comparatively few vestiges of age, the city has an historical past. In both a religious and a military sense, she has played a part in the annals of England, and more than one ancient document in the library of the dean and chapter bears testimony to her honour, her valour, and her glory. It is a city which has the impress of many ages, and many minds stamped upon it. Here each influence, military from the Roman legions, ecclesiastical from the Saxon prelates, feudal from the Norman lords, has sunk deeply into the land, and has affected the general plan of the numerous buildings, 
as it has moulded the slowly succeeding phases of the civic and the religious life. It is no mere dream of the early ages, no sentimental reverie of medievalism. It is enough to go through the streets, noting the remnants of the ancient walls, the brutal strength of the surviving fragments of the castle, the sheltered position of the tidal basin, the many churches dedicated to the honour of Saxon saints, the proud beauty and massiveness of the cathedral, if one would realise, not the fancies of the artist and the poet, but the hard facts of history that made the ancient days so great, and which have caused our own days to be so full of their memories. As compared with the sister counties of Cornwall and Dorset, Devonshire is not particularly well represented in memorials of the Roman occupation, although an immense number of Roman coins have been unearthed at various times. Coins, however, unless found with definite structural remains, indicate presence rather than a settled occupation, for large quantities of the Roman coinage must have continued in circulation long after the last of the legions of imperial Rome had departed from British shores. The few Roman antiquities of Exeter that have been found are important in a comparative sense, although they contrast poorly in structural character with those of our other Romano-British towns. It has been held that not only were the foundations of the city walls Roman, but part of the existing remains of the Rougemont Castle have also been assigned to this period. Mr. L. Davidson was of opinion that the old church tower of St. Mary Major, now removed, exhibited traces of Roman work, and foundations presumed to be Roman were noted by him as having been found at the corner of Castle Street and High Street, in St. Mary Arches Street, Bedford Circus, Market Street, South Street, and Mint Lane. In 1836, more definite structural remains were found in High Street, consisting of a family sepulchral vault, seven feet square, arched over, and containing five coarse cinerary urns, arranged in niches around its interior. This was discovered behind the Three Tons Inn, and during the same year, at a great depth below the site of the county bank, a low arched chamber was found, in which were a quantity of bones of men and animals. No Exonian find, however, exceeds in interest the discovery in 1833 of a bath and tessellated pavement behind the deanery walls in South Street. The walls were of heavy tree stone and brick, and the original pavement was of black and white tessery set in concrete. The associated remains of a 13th century encaustic tile pavement indicates the use of the old Roman bath a thousand years or so after it had been made. Several other tessellated pavements are recorded as having been found in Pancras Lane, on the site of Bedford Circus, and on the north side of the cathedral near the Speak Chapel. In 1836, a small bronze figure of Julius Caesar, now in the British Museum, about three inches in height, was dug up during the removal of some walls in the Westgate quarter of the city. The only recorded find of a military weapon is the bronze hilt of a dagger unearthed in South Street in 1833. This is of more than passing interest, as it bears the name of its owner, I Mefiti Eo Fris, which has been read thus, Servii Omarci Mefiti Tribuni Equitum Frisiorum, Servius Omercius Mefitus, Tribune of the Frisians. 
the antiquary Leland mentions two Roman inscriptions as built into the city wall near Southernhay, but they are gone, and besides the inscribed dagger, we have only a seal of Severius Pompeius and sundry graffiti or funereal pottery in the way of literary relics of Roman Exeter. The poverty of Devonshire in the memorials of the Roman period is shown by the fact that, outside Exeter, there are not a dozen places in the county which have yielded Roman vestigia other than coins. In 926 the Britons were driven from Exeter by Athelstan, who banished them into Cornwall, and fixed the river Tamar as their boundary. Athelstan was one of the greatest benefactors the city has had, for, in addition to increasing the fortifications by means of a massive wall flanked by towers, he built a castle on the Red Mount, now known as Rougemont Castle. Although very little of this now remains, a portion of the ruins is generally known as Athelstan's Tower, and has a window with a triangular head, which is certainly of Saxon style and date. In 932, Athelstan rebuilt the monastery of Our Lady and St. Peter, staffing it with monks of the Benedictine order, and presenting them with the reputed relics of St. Sidwell, a saint who is still somewhat of a puzzle to ecclesiologists. A few years later, the monastery was plundered by the Danes, when the monks beat a hasty retreat, but returned in 968 on the entreaty of King Edgar. A mint was shortly established here, wherein the first coins were struck, naming Athelstan King of England. The Danes made continuous raids in the neighbourhood, but were decisively defeated by the West Countrymen in 1001 at Pinhoe, a few miles from Exeter. From that time, until the treacherous massacre of the Danes in Wessex upon St. Price's Day in 1002 by Ethelred. This part of the country was comparatively free from their inroads, but Gunhilda, the sister of Swegen, king of Denmark, being among the slain, this king came to avenge her death. He sailed up the Ex, burning and plundering the villages on its banks, and for four years his army marched in every direction across Wessex, and was at length induced to withdraw, on being paid a wehrgeld, war tax, which was the first levied on Exeter. After the Battle of Hastings, Githa, the mother of Harold, took refuge in Exeter, and Leofric, the bishop, offered to render homage to William as royal suzerain. But the conqueror would have no half-hearted submission, so Exeter closed its gates to the Normans. It held out for eighteen days, when the military science of the Normans, and particularly the skill they showed in undermining the walls, caused it to surrender. The resistance won the besiegers' respect, and brought unusually good terms from so ruthless a victor as William. The lives of the garrison were spared. Githa was allowed to seek safety by sea, and it has been said that the victorious troops were withdrawn from the city gates to prevent them from claiming the licentious privileges so generally granted to their followers by the Norman kings. As is fitting for its county town, the first entry in the Devonshire Doomsday deals with Exeter, in which city it is recorded, the king had 285 houses rendering customary dues. The generally debased character of the coinage of the time led to various expedients being adopted by the exchequer for securing approximately accurate payment of a specified sum of money. 
Among other things, the entries in Doomsday state that in the total, this city of Exeter renders £18 per annum. Of these, Baldwin the Sheriff has £6 by weight and assay, and Colvin has of them £12 by tail for the service of Queen Edgith. This entry is significant, for one pound or twenty shillings meant one pound or twelve ounces troy of silver, and when money was payable by weight, twenty shillings were not taken as the equivalent of one pound unless they fully weighed one pound. In this instance it is observable that the portion of the customary dues rendered for the 285 houses which went to the exchequer was collected by the sheriff under the strictest rules of weight and assay, whereas the portion allotted to the widow of Edward the Confessor was received by the tail only. The authorities took care that the sheriff collected the full amount due to the crown, but did not trouble themselves about the ex-queen's share. It has been affirmed that it was by the Normans that the fairs of England were moulded into the shape with which we are most familiar. At Exeter, in 1276, in reply to a writ of Quo Aranto, it was satisfactorily shown that the rights of the city, its fee-farm rent, and its farms, dated from pre-conquest days. The privileges and emoluments attached to fairs in large towns were very great. During the time allotted to them, the citizens were often debarred from selling anything, whereas strangers could vend their wares during the fair, but at no other period of the year. In Cossin's Reminiscences of Exeter, 1877, we are told how, at Exeter, on the occasion of the Lammas Fair, a procession yet perambulates the city, one man bearing a pole with a gigantic stuffed glove at the top of it, the latter being subsequently hung out at the Guildhall. Many of England's reigning sovereigns have visited the city, among them being Edward the Fourth and Richard the Third. Henry the Seventh came thither on 7th of October 1497, on the suppression of Perkin Warbeck's rebellion, when that rebel had attempted to capture the city. The rebels were brought here before the king, bareheaded and with halters round their necks, and after they had pleaded for mercy, Henry pardoned them. On his departure, the king presented the civic authorities with a sword and cap of maintenance, both of which are still carried before the mayor and corporation on occasions of state. The citizens of Exeter have always been noted for their staunch loyalty to the reigning house, with the consequence that many rights and privileges have been granted to it. The city motto, Semper Fidelis, was conferred by Queen Elizabeth in recognition of the contributions, both of men and money, made to the fleet that vanquished the Spanish Armada. That the motto was merited is evident when we recall the fact that, with the exception of Frobisher and Cavendish, practically the whole of the leading seamen who chased the Spanish ships along the Channel were born in the land of the Tamar, the Tavy, and the Dart. During the early part of the Civil War, the citizens were divided in their sympathies, some supporting the Parliament and others the King, but the city soon fell into the hands of the former. In 1643, however, Sir Ralph Hopton, the famous Royalist General, marched on Exeter with a force made all the more formidable for siege purposes by the cannon he had previously captured at Halton. The immediate capture of the city by the Royalist forces was expected. The Mercurius Aulius of 1st June 1643, remarking that, if the old observation be of any credit, 
that cats and mice do commonly forsake a ruinous and decaying house that city exeter is not like to continue long in the rebels hands the proud and rebellious city was assaulted and captured by the royalist forces under prince maurice on fourth september sixteen forty three after a siege lasting sixteen days and a full account of its fall appeared in the issue of the mercurius aulius of eighth september in may sixteen forty four queen henrietta maria took up her abode in the city at bedford house where on sixteenth june of the same year the princess henrietta was born in the following month charles i came to see his little daughter and again in september when he appointed thomas fuller vicar of broadwindsor in dorset as chaplain to the princess the queen who had retired to exeter as a safe place for her confinement soon afterwards had to leave there suddenly on the approach of a parliamentary army in command of the earl of essex her majesty's easiest way to france was by sea and to prevent this cromwell had sent a fleet to torbay to intercept her should she attempt to leave england by that route finding this road closed she made for falmouth from which port she got safely away during the siege by fairfax the inhabitants of the city suffered considerably owing to the food supplies being intercepted one day a flight of larks came into the town which were says fuller as welcome as quails in the wilderness the birds were so numerous that notwithstanding the prevailing famine they were sold for twopence a dozen of this miraculous event wrote fuller i was not only an eye but a mouth witness the city capitulated on thirteenth april sixteen forty six among the conditions of surrender being that the cathedral should be spared and the garrison accorded the honours of war after the landing of william of orange at brixham in sixteen eighty eight he marched through the county to exeter and entered the city by its western gate he proceeded direct to the cathedral and took his seat in the bishop's throne with his chaplain burnett near him a few of the prebendaries and choristers attended the service but when burnett began to read the prince's declaration after the singing of the te deum they hurriedly departed the bishop thomas lamplew had proceeded to james on hearing that the dutch had landed and was rewarded with the archbishopric of york he afterwards assisted at william the third's coronation the dean of exeter had also left the city and the deanery was prepared for the prince's reception george the third was the last english sovereign to stay in exeter and he also resided at the deanery although the cathedral is the main attraction modern exeter has to offer to the tourist a walk through the historic old city will reveal the fact that in addition to some highly interesting old churches it possesses a not inconsiderable number of ancient buildings at the same time there has been an appalling amount of destruction some of it apparently of an unnecessary kind as the recent dismantling of the beautiful old courtyard in the rear of bampfylde house the city residence of the Paltimore family. The visitor who arrives at Exeter either by the Great Western or the South Western Railway, the station of the latter being the more central of the two, can soon reach the busy and picturesque High Street by way of Queen Street, one of the broadest thoroughfares in the city. The most interesting building in High Street, and one that in this respect ranks next to the Cathedral, is the Guildhall, 
with a portico projecting over the pavement. It is probably one of the oldest municipal buildings in the country, for in 1330 we find that the Guildhall was again in a ruinous condition, and it was then rebuilt. Again in 1464 it was built up anew in a more commodious and efficient manner, while the building as we see it today, with its façade, is the result of still further alterations in 1592. The entrance porch is separated from the inner hall by a massive oak doorway, and the hall itself, 60 feet long and 25 feet wide, is panelled throughout in oak, with a frieze consisting of shields charged with the arms of former mayors, aldermen, recorders, and of the city companies. Curious brackets of figures bearing staves support the roof. The judge's chair is of carved oak, and bears the name and date of the donor, Christopher Ball, Esquire, 1697. On the walls hang six large portraits, among them those of George III and General Monk, the latter by Sir Peter Lely, and over this picture hang the colours of the fourth Devons, a regiment raised in the city by the General in 1681. Another portrait here by Lely is of the Princess Henrietta, concerning which the old records state that, in 1671, the king, Charles II, in order to keep his promise made the last year when he visited this city in person, and as a signal testimony of his love towards the same, was pleased to send hither the effigy or portraiture, at length and richly framed, of his dear sister the Duchess of Orléans, lately deceased, a princess born within this city, and for beauty was esteemed to be one of the fairest in Christendom, which said picture, being placed in a fair case of timber, richly adorned with gold, is erected in the open guild-hall of the said city, there to remain as a perpetual monument of his majesty's high favour towards this his truly ancient, loyal and honourable city of Exeter. The upper room is known as the Mayor's Parlour, where are many more portraits, and the city's sword and cap of maintenance. The scabbard of the sword, which is the one presented by Edward the Fourth, is still draped in crepe, as it used to be for the processions on King Charles Martyr's Day, 30th of January. The cap of maintenance presented to the city, together with his sword by Henry the Seventh, was sent up to London to be repaired. The cost for sarcanet, damask and pin lace, amounting to four guineas, the original cap still remains within its covering, and it appears to consist of two pieces of black felt sewn together. During the 15th century, the chapel of St. George and St. John was built over the Guildhall, with an apartment above for the priest who served it, the chapel being probably connected with the religious guild. The junction of North and South Streets with Four and High Streets was formerly known as the Carfois or Carfax, Quatre voies, i.e. four ways, where, at one time, many executions took place. Here also stood the ancient conduit which supplied the city with water, but this was removed to South Street in 1779. At the corner, looking down Four Street, was a fine 14th century life-size figure of St. Peter, holding a model of a church in his right hand and a book in his left his feet trampling on a demon. This has been removed from its original position and placed high up in a niche over a shop close by. 
On the opposite side of High Street is St. Petrock's Church, at one time almost hidden from sight by the adjacent buildings. It is a curious little church of which portions have been assigned to the Saxon period. The parish of St. Petrock is in the centre of the city, and was one of the oldest and most important, being one of the nineteen churches to which William I ordered the provost to pay a silver penny yearly. The church was enlarged on the south side during the 15th century, and in the following century the Jesus Isle was added, when Thomas Chard, acting as Bishop Oldham's suffragan, reconsecrated the church. The chancel is now towards the east, in what was once an isle, the original chancel being where the north isle is now, with the consequence that the interior of the church has a very curious appearance. Farther up High Street on the same side are some picturesque houses with Elizabethan gables, the interiors of many of them adorned with fine specimens of oak carving in situ. The building now occupied by Messrs Green as a drapery establishment was at one time the new inn, and it is mentioned in this capacity so early as 1456 in a lease relating to the building, in which it is referred to as Le New Inn, in 1554, the cloth mart was established here, and early in the 17th century, the new inn hall was used as the exchange, where the cloth merchants met to transact their business. The house was rebuilt towards the close of the century, and the Apollo room was added as a banqueting hall for the judges on circuit. This is now used as a showroom, but it still retains its elaborate plaster ceiling, bearing the date 1695 and the original oak panelling. The frieze consists of a series of wreaths, upholding shields charged with the armorial bearings of many county families, together with the royal arms and those of the city. Farther up the street is the church of St. Stephen, mentioned in Doomsday. The original church was destroyed by the Commonwealth in 1658, and rebuilt in 1664. Stephen's bow, the adjacent archway, was always a part of the church, and above it rises the tower. Beneath the church is an ancient crypt. A turning to the right, close by, leads to Bedford Circus, with a statue of the Earl of Devon at the entrance. In the 13th century, a Dominican convent was founded in this part of the city, and occupied the southern portion of the circus, together with Chapel Street and the adjoining mews. In 1558, the convent was dissolved, and Bedford House, the West Country residence of the Dukes of Bedford, was erected. Here Henrietta Maria held her court, and here the little princess was born. The Dukes of Bedford ceased to use this residence in the 18th century, and in 1773 it fell into the builder's hands, when the eastern side of the circus was built, the western side not being begun until 1826. The place today possesses no attractive features, and only the memories of its past history remain. The earlier excavations brought to light a great number of skulls, bones and fragments of sculpture, while during the later building operations, especially those conducted on the site of the conventual church, a large number of carved stones were unearthed, which had evidently formed part of the Dominican house. Some of these fragments were richly ornamented with painting and gilding. Another discovery was the life-size stone head of an effigy, 
with a hood of closely set ring mail. This is now preserved in the cathedral cloisters. Returning to High Street, Bampfylde Street lies a little higher up. A great portion of this street is occupied by the front of Bampfylde House, built by Sir Amias Bampfylde at the end of the 16th century. In later years this became the townhouse of the Poltimore family. Although shamefully modernised, the house has retained a few interesting features. In the hall is seen a narrow window, filled with old glass on which armorial bearings are displayed, while the broad staircase leads to a fine apartment, panelled in oak, and having an elaborate plaster ceiling. The mantelpiece is a good piece of work, and bears the arms of the Poltimores in its centre. There are one or two other good rooms and some deep cupboards, and one very small apartment is said to be a genuine 18th-century powdering closet. The beautiful old courtyard at the back will no longer be recognised by those who knew it a few years ago. It has been restored. The Church of St. Lawrence is situated on the north side of High Street, and dates from 1202. It was sold during the Commonwealth, and bought by the parishioners for £100. On the south side and slightly farther up is St. John's Hospital, situated near to where the old East Gate formerly stood. The hospital was founded circa 1225 by Gilbert and John Long. Bishop Grandison was a great benefactor to it, as, in addition to increasing the number of inmates and clergy, he added a master of grammar and twelve scholars. The foundation was suppressed in 1540, but in 1620 this restoration was planned by Hugh Crossing and carried out after his death by his widow. The institution was refounded in 1629 when only the school was revived and is now known as the Blue Boys School. The playground is partly bounded by a piece of the old city wall whence one can look down on the southern hay gardens and obtain a good impression of the strength of the ancient fortifications. The seal of St. John's Hospital is an interesting one, of 13th century date, on which is depicted the exterior of St. John's Chapel, which is shown as having a shingled roof and gable crosses, also an external arcade of three semicircular arches. Another interesting seal of the same century is that of the Hospital of St. Alexius, founded in 1170. This foundation and the Hospital of the Bishops formerly on the site of the present Vicar's College, were afterwards united with the Hospital of St. John at the East Gate. The seal shows the hospital with gable crosses, an arcaded clerestory, and three quatrefoil openings in its wall. Beneath is an arcade of six arches. High Street merges into Sidwell Street. St. Sidwell's was one of the nineteen old city parishes although without the walls. The site of St. Sidwell's Church is said to be on the spot where a saint of this name suffered martyrdom. She is one of those half-mythical British saints, said by tradition to have been beheaded by a scythe whilst praying beside a well. A church is said to have been built in her honour so early as 749. The present building has undergone repeated restorations, but some ancient pillars still remain, with sculptured capitals, and there is also a representation of St. Sidwell, or Sidwella, whose attributes are a well and a scythe. So the monastery he had founded, 
Athelstan presented some reputed relics of the saint. At the top of Sidwell Street is St. Anne's Almshouse, one of the most interesting foundations in the city. It was originally a hermitage, but little is known about it until 1418, when it was newly constructed, and in 1561, Oliver and George Mannering founded a hospital for eight poor people. The chapel is a small building that has retained its piscina and two niches for holding figures. The almshouse was fortified by Fairfax during the Civil War, and for many years the chapel was in a ruinous condition, but it was restored early in the 19th century. St. Anne's Day, 26th July has been observed regularly by the inmates of the charity since its foundation. Retracing our steps to the beginning of High Street, and proceeding up Castle Street, we reach the highest point of the city, the Red Mount, crowned by the gateway and ruined towers of an ancient castle. The fortress formed as part of the fortifications erected by Athelstan, and the Red Tower with its triangular-headed window, may be confidently assigned to the Saxon era. During the Norman period, the castle was rebuilt by Brian de Mollis. In Stephen's reign, it was besieged and taken from Earl Baldwin de Redvers, who was banished until the following reign, when his possessions were restored. The castle belonged to the de Redvers and Courtney families until 1231, when Henry III presented it to his brother Richard as part of the earldom of Cornwall. In 1537, Henry VIII granted Exeter a charter, giving the city the privilege of being a county with its own sheriffs, excepting Rougemont Castle, which still belongs to the Duchy of Cornwall. In 1774, a large portion of the castle ruins were cleared away, when several interesting buildings were destroyed, among them the Chapel of the Blessed Virgin, to make room for the present Assize Court a plain building with no pretensions to architectural beauty. On the right of the castle yard is a little path leading to the top of the walls, whence a comprehensive view of the city and the neighbourhood can be obtained. Looking straight across the valley beyond the county jail, one can see the site of the ancient camp of the Danes, against whom Athelstan built his fortifications, now occupied by the reservoir. At the foot of the wall are the Northern Hay Gardens, a favourite resort with youthful Exonians. From Northern Hay, the old walls can easily be traced westwards, and crossing Queen Street, we may proceed down the narrow Maddox Row to find the wall pierced by the only archway now remaining. Continuing westwards, we cross North Street, where the old North Gate stood until it was demolished in 1769. Entering Bartholomew Street East, we are on the ramparts again, and from the bastion near All Hallows on the Walls Church, we may look down upon the old Bartholomew burying ground, consecrated in 1639, and used as the principal city cemetery for nearly 200 years. The church of All Hallows on the Walls is a modern one that stands on the site of a more ancient edifice. From this point one can see the tapering spire of St. Michael's Church in the grounds of Mount Dinham, where are the almshouses erected and endowed in 1860 by John Dinham. Here are 40 free cottages and Episcopal charity schools, the latter founded originally in 1709 by Bishop Offspring Blackhall. 
continuing along the bastion, the limit of the northern wall is soon reached. Many of the old streets in this quarter of the city are worth visiting, for in the narrow thoroughfares are some interesting old houses. In St. Mary Arches Street is the church of the same name, shut in by houses. It is one of the old parish churches of Exeter, and one that takes part of its name from the fine Norman pillars and arcade of the nave, which is the oldest in the city. In the south aisle is a chantry containing the altar tomb of Thomas Andrews, mayor in 1505 and 1510, and who died in 1518. Mint Street, as its name implies, was associated with the mint established there by permission of William III. The coinage minted there may be recognised by the letter E placed beneath the king's head. Bartholomew Street brings us to Four Street, a narrow and very steep thoroughfare, within which is the fine front of the Tucker's Hall, belonging to the incorporated guilds of weavers, fullers and shearmen, chartered in 1490. Close at hand are steps leading down to X Island, which was for many years a subject of dispute between the Earls of Devon and the citizens. But on the attainder of Henry, Marquis of Exeter, in 1558, the property reverted to the crown. On the conclusion of the prayer book riots, the island was granted to the city by Edward VI as a reward for the services it had rendered the authorities. Many of the old portions of the island have been destroyed, many of them in recent years, but an interesting specimen of a Tudor house remains, with the covering of slates, somewhat resembling scale armour. Shields appear in the ornamentation, one of them bearing the Tudor rose. At one time this style of wall covering was very common in Exeter, but the example in X Island is the only one now remaining. On the south side of Four Street stands St. Olave's Church, where, according to Doomsday, a church with the same dedication existed before the conquest. It is said traditionally to have been built by Gaitha, Harold's mother, in order that masses might be said for the souls of her son and Earl Godwin. William I gave the church to the monks of Battle Abbey, in whose possession it remained until the Reformation. More than a century later, St. Olave's was lent to the French Huguenot refugees, many of whom settled in Exeter, where they established an important woollen industry. The present church bears few indications of antiquity, beyond some Norman arches and a little early carving in the tower. At the lower end of Four Street is West Street, marking the western limits of the old walls. A right-hand turn leads to St. Edmund's Church, built in the 13th century at one end of the old bridge, when it was known as St. Edmund's Super Pontem. In 1831, the original structure was pulled down and the present building begun. It is said to stand upon some of the arches of the ancient bridge. Turning eastwards, we reach the foot of Stepcote Hill and the church of St. Mary Steps. A remarkable exterior feature is the old clock and figures, known locally as Matthew the Miller. The dial is enriched with basso relievos, representing the four seasons, and in a niche just above, is a small effigy of Henry VIII in a sitting posture, who nods his head as each hour is struck. On each side is a military figure, their morions crowned with feathers, javelins held in their right hands, and small hammers in their left hands, 
with which they alternately strike the quarter hours on two small bells at their feet. The name of Matthew the Miller is said to have originated from the punctuality of a miller of that name, who was so regular in going to and from his mill that people set their clocks by him. The church contains a fine chancel screen with twenty-eight panels of painted saints, which was removed from the church of St. Mary Major. The font is a good one, of Norman date. Just opposite St. Mary's Steps stood the west gate of the city, which was taken down in 1814. The Westgate Quarter formed part of the manor of X Island, and was inhabited chiefly by weavers, fullers, dyers, and those whose occupations required a copious supply of water. The whole of this district is intersected with narrow lanes and passages, beneath and around which are many streams diverted from the river to work the mills. A few old gabled houses with overhanging upper stories still remain in this district, but they are in a very dilapidated condition, as will be noticed by anyone who traverses one of the numerous byways that lead to South Street, at the lower end of which is Magdalen Street, where are two very interesting hospitals, Wynard's and the Magdalen. The former was founded in 1430 by William Wynard, sometime recorder of the city, for the habitation of a priest and twelve poor men. The attached chapel was dedicated to the Holy Trinity, and the hospital was called God's House. The founder left many lands and tenements to provide funds for the establishment. The master might not be absent more than once or twice in the year, and his total holidays in the twelve months were never to exceed three weeks and three days. He was also required to teach from three to nine boys, starting them with the alphabet, and going on to the great Psalter of the Holy David. The foundation passed eventually into the possession of William Kenaway, who built a vault within which he was buried. The hospital today is one of the secular buildings of Exeter most worth visiting, with its gabled houses, dormer windows and garden plots. An archway leads into the courtyard, around which on three sides are grouped the houses of the twelve pensioners. The chapel occupies the fourth side of the quadrangle. The Magdalen or Leper Hospital, just without the south gate, was founded some time before 1135, for in 1136 we find that Bishop Bartholomew permitted a continuance of the ancient rite, by which the lepers were allowed to collect food twice a week in the market, and arms on two other days, to all of which the healthy members of the community naturally objected. In 1245, Bishop Bruer resigned the guardianship of the leper hospital to the corporation, and was given in its stead the mastership of the hospital of St. John, one of the mayors of Exeter, Richard Orange, was a great patron of the Lazar House, and when he himself contracted leprosy, he took up his abode in the hospital, where he died and was buried in the chapel. Even so late as the 16th century, there would appear to have been lepers in Exeter, for we find that in 1580, no one was to be admitted to the Magdalen Hospital, except sick persons and the disease of leprosy. In South Street is College Hall, or the Hall of the College of Priest Vicars, or Vicars Choral, a fine oak-panelled apartment. The original hall was built by Bishop Brantingham, about 1388, and access was then gained to it from the close.
the houses of the priest-vicars being arranged on each side of a green. All this has now disappeared, with the exception of the hall, which was rebuilt in the fifteenth century. At one end is a gallery upon the upper panels of which are paintings representing former bishops of the diocese, beginning with Leofric. On the carved mantelpiece is the date, 1629, and the owls which constitute the punning, or elusive, arms of Bishop Oldham. Near the hall, a road leads into the close, passing the church of St. Mary Major, a modern building replacing a beautiful old one, which appears to have been needlessly destroyed. On the eastern side of the close is a picturesque Elizabethan building, known as Moll's Coffee House. At the time of the Armada, it was a private residence. In 1596, the original house was pulled down, and the present building erected. On the introduction of coffee into England, it was opened as a club and coffee house by an Italian named Moll. As such, it was a well-known and popular resort with the citizens of Exeter and the squires of the neighbourhood until 1829. It is now used as a shop by a firm of fine art dealers, but the fine armada room upstairs is willingly shown to all visitors who express a wish to see it. It is a good panelled room, with low windows and an elaborate frieze of shields bearing the arms of many ancient Devonshire families, among them being those of Sir Francis Drake, Sir Walter Raleigh and General Monk. Adjoining Moll's Coffee House is the very small church of St. Martin, now but rarely used for defined service. On the Catherine Street side of the church is a building, formerly an almshouse, which has an attached chapel of much interest, dedicated to St. Catherine. The chapel is conjectured to have been built by the Anuela monks, whose college originally stood on the site of Moll's Coffee House, where traces of it may still be seen in the cellars. The narrow passage of St. Martin's Lane, known to the present-day citizens as Luxury Lane, on account of its shops, leads directly from the busy high street to the Cathedral Close. End of Part 1